0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. Welcome. I hope you're doing well. Got a lot of things to talk about today. Speaking about, we're going to get to some lighter topics. I know COVID is sort of on everybody's mind, so we're going to make it a little bit light by talking about the death of digital nomadism, plane crashes, tech, whether or not you should buy your tech now or wait. Got a lot of reasons related to COVID about that coming up. India versus Pakistan. And finally, I'm going to leave it off with some tips from Pixar. So rounding out a little bit light, but we're going to get into some things that that I think are pretty interesting. Now, there's some pretty interesting developments, both in travel and tech that I want to get to. But before that, let me go over some things. I don't know if you've seen uh, my latest blog post. It is on Plovdiv in Bulgaria. I recommend that you check that out and read it because it is yet one of another amazing set of places that are just sort of hidden gems that everybody in bulgaria knows about but most people outside of the country don't know about it is one of the best places in the world to travel by far so when you can travel i think it should be one of the top of your travel list because it's inexpensive it's easy to get around there is so much to see so so much to see a lot of beautiful nature architecture Roman ruins, all kinds of stuff. It's not very expensive at all. It's not very crowded at all. There are not very many tourists. There's only 6 million people in the whole country. So it's not like, uh, you know, most of these sites are overloaded with tourists or even locals. Uh, So much to see there. So I recommend that you check that out. Also up on YouTube, I just put out a video on how to choose the best one travel backpack, which is basically one travel bags are backpacks that you use where you don't want to check in a bag so if you're going for an extended trip one two three weeks whatever and you just want to carry one bag on your back and keep it in the uh, keep it in the plane with you that's uh, referred to as a one bag travel bag and uh, there are just so many of them there's so many different options it can get really complicated and if you're like me somebody who likes to obsess over backpacks and who reviews backpacks on youtube then you can really go down Far into the rabbit hole and it's something that's both a lot of fun if you enjoy it I love testing backpacks um, but also frustrating because there is no perfect backpack there are backpacks that I use that are like two features two tweaks away from being perfect but um, there's no perfect backpack because your travels change you change bags are trying to make a bag for a lot of people anyway to make it all easy for you, I put out a video called "The Three Best Travel Backpacks," three best one travel backpacks in three minutes. That's on YouTube. You can check that out. Also, I've got another review about the MX Anywhere 2S mouse, which is the mouse that I have in my hand right now, um, which is a great travel mouse. If you want to check that out, also a review of a tripod. I know tripods kind of boring, but uh, most of the footage from that was from my trip to the Galapagos. So a lot of the background footage there is from the Galapagos and it's just really pretty to look at. So just let it run and, and, you know, just hit the like button too. Why not while you're there? Um, And lastly, rounding out a few things, uh, there's another video on how Bluetooth trackers work. And speaking about Bluetooth trackers and one-bag travel, I want to get into the first topic. And that's about digital nomadism and whether or not it is dead and relating that to lithium-ion batteries. I know that sounded like a jumbled mess, um, but go with me for a second here. So now as travel is starting to open up, we're getting into the next phase. Um, and and make no mistake about it. Governments are opening up travel for a lot of reasons, but they're really just doing it mostly now for tourism. So they want those tourism dollars. They're not opening anything up because they want people to travel and you know they're looking for your enlightenment through seeing new places they want basically they want those those uh that tourism income and that's why you see this big push around the world uh, especially in the northern hemisphere for countries to open up by june 1st june 15th you're seeing those dates around a lot i know europe is talking about that they had some bubbles like you know the the uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania bubble, travel bubble, open borders between those three countries. And now that's kind of opened up and and Greece is sort of opening up. And so you see this a lot. And you see this even in Turkey as well, which relies heavily on tourism as part of its economy. So I think there's this push right now to open things up, whether or not uh, it's logical to do it. So whether or not the science or 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 the statistics back this up, I think the economic incentive right now is, hey, if we can open up things now, even however clunky it's going to be, we're going to open it up. Prediction, I think then in September, you're going to see things start to shut down again. I think you're going to start to see more lockdowns. You're going to see closed borders, assuming that all of this travel, if people do travel at all, which is a big if. um, I think you're going to see kind of a rise in, in numbers and you might see some backtracking by governments and so on. But definitely, I think in September, I would guess that there's going to be sort of this shutdown or slowdown. So right now, what we are is going from lockdown into this sort of tourism season that is peppered with all of these compromises. And one of these compromises, which I found very interesting, uh, which is these rules for Turkish airports, for example. So this was just an unveiled um, just yesterday, actually, as... As uh, as you're listening to this um, And basically there are a whole bunch of different rules And one rule that You know these are The rules Basically these are rules that are You know common sense kind of things that you would expect Like you know you have to wear a mask at the airport When you're on the plane um, And so on And you, you know you can't have uh, Extra family members with you In the airport only passengers will be allowed in And so on Those kind of things are, are to be expected right but this one really caught my eye, and it's uh, the new rules forbid cabin luggage except laptop computers, handbags, and necessary items for toddlers. Uh, passengers with fever, cough, and respiratory problems will be referred to healthcare units. All right, so the latter part makes sense. If you're sick, they're gonna they're gonna give you a checkup, I guess. But uh, the no cabin luggage that that's terrifying. That's that's pretty terrifying to somebody like me who travels with a whole freaking office in his backpack. Speaking about one bag travel, I mean, my bag is the air travel pack two. That's the one I'm using lately. That bag is a 34 liter bag and it's just full of electronics. So I'm just going to kind of turn my back here. I can kind of see. So I've got a drone. We got the We've got two tripods, a microphone stand. Um, let's see, we've got, um, two microphones, three microphones, actually, because I didn't count the one I'm talking on, the microphone stand that this microphone is on, my laptop, obviously, a couple of hard drives, camera, lens, camera, camera, lens, headphones for audio recording. Um, I could go on and on and on, but I have a ton of electronics. And, uh, yeah, so... um, So that's one thing. So I don't know how this is going to actually be implemented. And I've heard other countries talking about this as well. I don't know what the logic is behind this. I don't know, you know, is it to prevent slowdowns at airport security? So the less things that you have with you, the quicker you get through airport security. So there's less crowding at those sort of choke points. I don't know if that's logic number A. Um, But for somebody like me, and I think most of you, you know, I think most of us, this is going to be something that's difficult to deal with because, first of all, there are just practical implications. One, if I check, you know, I can bring my laptop with me. That's that's great. But to be entirely honest with you, of all the electronics I carry, my laptop is probably the one that I could secure in a suitcase. and I think it would do okay getting thrown around. I really do think so. I, I think of all the things I carry, especially now that, you know, most of us are using laptops with solid state drives or just carrying around tablets, I think we're going to be fine. I think they're going to be pretty res- resistant, resilient, especially if you pack a laptop, let's say, in a in a suitcase in the middle of all your clothes. It's going to do well, first thing. There's a reason that you can't do that, but let me get into that later. The second thing is a camera. So I gotta, I'm looking at the camera lens right now. That is a sensitive piece of equipment. In fact, when I travel my lens is in really is in three cases. So it's got the lens case and then that goes over the case of the camera as well. And then those two things are in their own separate case and they are completely stuffed with all my other items so they can't really move. Um, for those of you who travel with camera gear, you want to make sure if you have a separate lens, You want to make sure that the aperture is set to the widest point when you travel with it. So whenever you store your lens, whatever the lowest f-stop is, that's what you want to set it to. What that means is basically the aperture of the lens is the little uh, blades on the inside which let light in and let light out. Imagine like your your eye. So when it's bright outside, your pupils are going to get smaller. And when it's dark, your pupils are going to dilate. You want those blades in your lens to be completely dilated as much as possible because they don't move around as much. They're not as exposed in the lens housing. So that's what you want to do. So camera equipment aside, I don't know how that's all going to work. I think these things are still shaking out because I'm going to guess that the, that the pilots and that the airlines are going to push back to this. And I think the reason is what might save us all and might save all of our electronics is because it's... Pretty dangerous to check in lithium ion batteries. A lot of you may not know this, um, but lithium ion batteries have caused several crashes in the past. There's a very famous crash, I think, of a FedEx plane um, in the UAE that was carrying a whole bunch of batteries in it, uh, which is the reason why batteries have to be transported usually on the ground now. Um, otherwise, they have special requirements when they travel. Uh, in the sky, um, so going into that, they have uh, let, let me find this article here. So this article from uh, Consumer Reports talks about the problems with stowing lithium-ion batteries on planes. Now it's interesting that this article came out in March two thousand and seventeen because that's when the U.S. U.S. Uh, banned due to terrorism concerns. It it banned. Um, it banned electronics from the cabins of most U.S.-bound flights, so that meant it is we're kind of a situation where we're in now. It said the don't the Ho- Department of Homeland Security announced Tuesday that laptops and other large electronics won't be allowed in the passenger cabins of nonstop flights to the U.S. from ten Middle Eastern airports and North Africa, so on and so on. Right. So this is two or three year old news. However, the interesting thing is, so. The issue has been studied extensively by aviation safety experts over the past few years and there is emerging an emerging body of opinion that yes, it is somewhat safer if laptops and similar devices are kept in passenger compartment rather than the cargo hold. Why? For one thing, if a laptop catches fire in the cabin, it will be noticed immediately and steps will be taken to put it out. And although there are fire safety systems in the hold of an airplane, they aren't well equipped to deal with the type of fire that a lithium-ion battery can generate. There's a balance here, says John Cox, a former pilot and CEO of Safety Operating Systems, an aviation consulting firm. As we put lithium-ion batteries in cargo holds, they are no longer in an area where the crew can deal with them if they do catch fire. And the fire suppression systems using only uh, the common halon, which is a a fire extinguishing system, have not proven to be effective on lithium-ion fires. So that's one of the main reasons. So if something starts to catch fire, especially a lithium-ion battery, the automatic systems are not going to put that out. By the time anybody notices, because it's in the cargo hold, it can be a major, major problem in the sky. So if you have a cargo hold with numerous lithium batteries, once one goes and starts heating, it can propagate to further devices, Cox said. You have this reignition. Cox adds that the FAA in a very, very difficult, is in a very, very difficult situation. Uh, he said, I would like to see the risk analysis, but at this point, I think we've mitigated some risk and introduced some other. Um, and then going on to DHS has declined to explain why it believes storing these devices in check luggage will improve uh, safety. We're not able to talk about the specific details of the security requirements, um, but lithium ions are known safety risks, says Karen Walker, editor-in-chief at Air Transport World. If they catch fire, it's very intense heat and fire and aircraft don't mix very well. Um, Last thing that says battery malfunctions According to Consumer Reports Is usually because the membranes that separate The charges in the battery are breached A violent burst of energy causes the battery to reach Temperatures approaching 1000 degrees Fahrenheit Potentially destabilizing nearby batteries Creating a condition known as thermal runaway The frequency of fires is quite small Compared to the number of batteries in use But it's still a potential hazard An expert on battery science he adds non-rechargeable batteries such as AA and AAA. You might find in a remote control. Do not po- pose the same threats. So given that most of us are traveling with lithium-ion batteries, that's going to be something of a concern. Uh, I would I would be interested. I'm going to guess that's why they're allowing laptops to be kept in the cabin, so in carry-on baggage, I'm guessing. But that doesn't... What about things like other lithium-ion batteries, for like a drone, for example, or for a camera. Yes, those batteries are typically a lot smaller than a laptop battery. A laptop battery, the maximum that's allowed is 100 watts, which is a fun fact, which is why the 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro has that size battery. It's the maximum battery you can fly with, the largest capacity battery, 100-watt battery. There you go. So most of the other batteries that you travel with are going to be smaller and not pose as much of a risk or hazard, um, but they they still can. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of that. And uh, for for those of us, for many of us who rely on our carry on bag uh, to supplement what we do check in as well, if if you travel one bag travel, I don't. This is gonna really make it difficult for you to to travel. So I, I don't know what the compromise is going to be. I don't know how that's going to play out, but I think you're going to have to probably get in something to check in. You have checked in luggage and then, you know, then you're going to have to, if you already do that and you rely on your carry-on bag, you're probably going to have to combine that with another suitcase, basically, to offset what you would ne- normally carry in your carry-on bag. As far as photographers, videographers, people with sensitive equipment, especially, I don't know how that's going to play out. I'm going to try to, I'm going to reach out to some of these airlines and try to get more information about this. Hopefully, I would say you would be able to keep, you know, as a quote handbag, you'd be able to keep your camera in there and then maybe check. like If I'm going to sacrifice some equipment, oh boy, Uh, I guess it's going to be the The drone. I guess the drone, I'm going to have to send that in in the checked luggage. And also on top of all this, hope nothing gets stolen. Um, In all my years of travel, I've only had things stolen from me once. And that was when I put in some electronics in checked bags. And uh, yeah, there was uh, the camera equipment that I had checked in. this This was about 10 years ago, but all that equipment never never made it so um so i i don't like to check in anything really valuable um in my check luggage and if it is i try to stuff it as far away from from the zippers as possible but you know uh, those are some concerns to look out for we're going to see how this plays out if you rely a lot on your carry-on bag if you use a lot of electronics when you travel let me know what you think about this on Twitter. You can hit me up at Fox Nomad. I'm on Twitter, and I would like to hear um, how this is affecting you. I know for me, not traveling with electronics is going to be not traveling, so that's going to be an issue. So you're going to have to. I'm going to have to get more clarification on this and figure out how to proceed. So yay, fun times to look forward to. But uh, hopefully, our lithium-ion batteries will will save us. Uh, who would have thought? a fire hazard might actually make it more comfortable for us to travel in the near term. So anyway, that's that with batteries. And I was going to talk about digital nomadism being dead. But for now, let's just say that lithium ion batteries might help us at least to move with a lot of the stuff we've traveled with in the past. And I'm going to save that deeper discussion for an upcoming episode. But next, I want to get into some tech, talk about how this is affecting tech and whether or not you should buy some of the major releases that are coming out from all kinds of manufacturers now or whether you should wait in a moment. All right, so we're back. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about and I've been getting a lot of questions about is, hey, this is a great time to buy tech. Should I buy tech right now? A lot of things are going on sale. Looks like. You know, uh, manufacturers are putting out even Apple, Apple, even Apple put out the iPhone SE, which is like $400. They put out the MacBook Air a $1,000. I mean, okay, those may not be cheap uh, products for in the grand scheme of things. But when you think about Apple, those are quality products that they put out at very discounted prices compared to what they've done in the past. Even Apple is kind of getting into the game into the into sort of the budget market. And I don't know if that was usually those decisions are made way before a product is released, you know, the price point because obviously that goes into what they're going to manufacture and so on, but it hit at a really really good time. And DJI just put a whole bunch of their products on sale. They just put the DJI Osmo on sale again. So the DJI Osmo sale with its kit is about $250 right now, which is such a good Such a good deal. And that camera just keeps getting better and better and better. And they just put out DJI Mavic Mini, which is also... Oh, sorry, not the Mini. Whoops. Reverse. Uh, They just put out the DJI Mavic Air 2, which is probably the best drone they've really put out. You know, And the price point of that is also great. If you're a Mavic user, the Air 2 is going to be one that you want to take a look at. So with all this great tech coming out, especially from these big companies who make very popular products, is this a good time to buy? Now, I think yes and no. Let me go with the yes. Typically, the beginning of the summer season, especially for camera gear, is, the, is, a, is sort of one of the sweet spots of the year to buy these kind of things. First of all, because a lot of those camera companies, a lot of the sales happen before people travel. So before the summer tourism season, those things go on sale. That is because a lot of products come out in September, October, November. So you'll see that uh, release cycle toward the end of the year. You'll see iPhones coming out end of September-ish. You'll see Google's phone coming out at the end of October. Usually they'll put theirs out. Um, Usually if there's going to be a big sort of camera announcement, GoPro usually does that in September. So there are these kind of predictable release cycles. DJI is a little bit separate because they, they just put out products on a sort of a non-consistent basis. So the DJI Osmo action came out June, 2019. So June, 2000 last year, and it doesn't seem like a new one is going to come out in the fall is my guess. And same thing with their drones. Like they put out a drone and you know, the, the distance between the air one and two was almost two and a half years. Same thing between the Mavics. That was about 18 months. So, um, but there are these predictable release cycles. So if products come out at the end of year, November, September, October, then by May, those products have been out for a while. That's when they typically go on discount. And the same thing is happening this year. However, the products have gone on more of a discount. Very interesting. So you look at these Apple products, Apple had the MacBook Air out for $1,000 and then they put it on sale $100 off. Now, that was the educational discount, which they usually have some sort of educational discount, but then they gave that discount to everybody for a while. So then it was just $100 off for anybody. So even Apple is into this game. So you might be wondering, is this a good time? These sales are really good. They're even better than normal pre-travel season May technology sales. I would say this. The yes part of that is this is a good time. If you really need a piece of gear, if you need electronics, this is a good time. For Apple stuff, I'd wait till June 23rd because the 22nd is WWDC, the developer conference. They're going to announce the latest version of iOS, macOS, and sometimes they announce a new product. I would wait for that. We're still kind of hoping, I I think those hopes were a little bit dashed for a 14-inch MacBook Pro because the 13-inch was just kind of refreshed. But... We're still kind of waiting. There haven't there haven't there were rumors and then the rumors went away. So I would wait for that especially if you're looking at laptops, but it's a good time to buy right now. If you need something, you're not going to you're not going to regret it by getting it now in terms of price. I would say this though, because of all the production delays from all these companies because of COVID and all the factories shutting down all over the world. We know that the production for a lot of companies, and I covered that on a previous episode of the podcast, has been slowed down by about two and a half to three months. We know that different, you know, when you make a laptop, for example, you don't necessarily get all your parts from China. And some of are made in Japan or Korea or U.S. or wherever. And so the factories might be working in one country, but not up to, you know, running up to running or not 100% um Steam already in, in another country. And so there's this slowdown. So a lot of the tech products and even Apple's iPhone in, in the fall is probably going to be pushed back. That's what they've kind of alluded to as well, which means, depending on what kind of disruptions we get now, it seems likely that a lot of products that were going to come out in September might get pushed back to November. Even into December are some rumors for a couple of major manufacturers, Samsung, Apple, all those guys. So given that we're going to start getting into this shopping season, and we don't know how busy the shopping season is going to be. This economic hit is going to mean a lot less people are going to have uh, disposable income to be shopping with. All of these things go, Hmm, I'm company A, big company A. And, uh, we know that, you know, people are spending less. Okay. We know that our new product is not going to come out until way late in the year when most people have already bought all the things like gifts that they were going to buy for the year. Which means I think September, October, depending, depending, uh, big if, depending on those production delays, if those delays really do push products into November and December, those September and October deals are going to be really good, really, really good. Normally, that's normally end of August is a good time to buy stuff. A lot of people last year were screaming at me for getting the GoPro 7 right before the right when the GoPro 8 was announced. They were like, yeah, you should have got that, you know, like I was like, hey, I knew that the latest GoPro was going to go on sale because the 8 was announced. It was a hundred dollars cheaper, like boom, instantly hundred dollars cheaper. I don't need the latest and, and newest thing. And, and it turned out to be a good decision because the 8 has a couple of things that I just don't like about it. So there you go. So that worked out. So it, it kind of benefits to be one model version behind on a lot of products. And I think if you can wait until September, the deals on tech are going to be really, really, really good. And uh, you might need it because your camera lens might might arrive at your next destination in a thousand pieces because you had to check it in for who knows what reason. I don't know. But there you go. That's my uh, that's my advice. If you can wait for it, I would wait until the fall. There's going to be some especially good deals at that time of the year. I don't think you should be scared about the iPhone 12. I don't think you should wait for the latest and greatest and the newest products. I think you should really hit that sweet spot September, October. Some really good deals are going to come out. We'll have a very good indication. I'm hoping there will be some sort of update at WWDC, which I'll be either live streaming or there's going to be a podcast out about WWDC like right as it happens. So you can listen to that and get my thoughts on that. So there you go. That's about tech. Uh, I'd say wait September, October. You have some really, really, really good deals, especially on accessories like cameras and stuff. Big purchase items, laptops. I'm going to guess that that trend is going to be more gradual. But come August, September, October you're going to see those prices really drop, especially on uh, camera gear and uh, and some phones as well. All right, so now that we've talked about that, talked about not being able to check in your bags on a plane, and then now we've talked about the tech that you're going to buy for a good price and have to check in on a plane. Let's talk about turbulence and uh, turbulence crashing planes. All right, so this might seem a little bit, crazy topic to talk about but if you are you know nervous about flying oh i you know i think reading more about plane crashes can help because you realize most crashes are sort of the thing that takes uh there's a book called the survivor's guide that most crashes i think the average takes like seven things have to go wrong pretty much at the same time for that to happen i don't know it makes me feel kind of better I, It might might just horrify you but but keep listening anyway I came across this thread, which goes over some advice, uh, which goes over a question. So this was on Ask Science on Reddit. Um, And this is something that I've read in, uh, I believe it might even be the Survivor's Guide. But basically, there's no amount of turbulence that can crash a plane. So you hear this, you might have heard this anecdote. Don't be scared of turbulence. There's no amount that could crash a plane. So here we go. Let's get into the science of this. Is this true or is this not true? Um, also, just just to note, as far as turbulence goes, when you're on an airplane, I wrote an article about this about a year ago that most of us think, you know, when when you feel that drop in your stomach and you're going down that you've dropped like a couple hundred feet when in actual most most of the time turbulence is an average of five, five, maybe 10 feet. That's the average um, at the worst turbulence is about 100 feet. But usually when you start to feel that drop, you fall fallen about five feet. That's when the drop starts to... You start to feel that in your stomach. Um, the reason it feels so intense is because you're going so fast. So it's like hitting a speed bump at like 300 miles an hour. You know, normally the speed bump is is not going to be that... that, uh, you know, that violent of a... whatever reaction. But when you hit it so fast, that's what happens. And the same thing in a plane... You're going, you know, five, six hundred miles an hour. You hit uh, a different air pattern or whatever, and then you hit that bump at, you know, even if it's a meter or two up or down, you're going to feel it because you're going so fast. And that's the reason for that. Now, whether or not turbulence can crash an airplane or not, uh, this is the answer. This is a good answer with a lot of statistics and articles And it says, it would be extremely unusual for an airplane to suffer a crash as a result of atmospheric turbulence, but it has happened before, at least once in the past. This was in 1966. A Boeing 707 flying near Mount Fuji hit a strong atmospheric turbulence associated with the near-air movement, the movement of air, sorry, with the movement of air near the mountain and broke up in flight, presumably because the gust loading was so severe it exceeded design limits. In a more recent incident, 1993, a 747 encountered severe turbulence as it approached Chuga Mountains immediately after departing Anchorage, Alaska, and suffered severe enough loading that an engine and an engine pylon were torn from the aircraft. Nobody was in- injured. That is that's incredible. <laughs> like to have an engine and the whole pylon just ripped off a plane in flight, and they land safely and nobody's hurt. Amazing. Um, So it goes on and says, it is significant that both of these incidents were suffered by planes designed and built in the 1950s through the 1970s. At that time, aircraft design was not as well informed as it is today. It was not possible to apply realistic wind loading associated with turbulence and to do detailed stress calculations over the entire airframe to ensure that there would not be a failure. For example, at the time, federal regulations only required aircraft designers to perform uniaxial loading analysis on the engine pylons rather than accounting for the combined lateral and vertical loads. If you can tolerate X-force vertically and Y-force laterally, you may not be able to tolerate the simultaneous application of both loads. Modern aircraft are designed and coupled aerodynamic structural solvers so designers can apply arbitrary flow and field and structural response. I'm just going to throw this in there, but uh, you know, as a computer guy, I, I'm going to say that the advancement of computer simulations and calculations probably has a huge part of that. So you can run all kinds of scenarios and simulations and calculations using computer simulators, basically. So the more processing power you have, I'm going to guess that, that that's that been a significant, really big change since at least the 1970s. By far the most significant hazard associated with atmospheric turbulence in commercial aviation is the risk of injuries to passengers who are unsecured. Turbulence is the leading cause of injury in non-fatal aircraft accidents in the United States. About two-thirds of those injuries were suffered by flight attendants rather than paying customers. Turbulence-induced accelerations can, in some cases, cause momentary G-loading, which is when the top of the aircraft becomes down and people and objects fall upwards and then cause them to go down a moment later. This is why it is vital, and the article says it, and I'm saying it, vital to stay buckled up in your seat unless absolutely necessary and to keep your luggage stowed in bins or under the seat in front of you. Very, very, very good advice. Rounding this out, this topic out, atmospheric turbulence is not a major structural hazard to the aircraft, but aircraft turbulence wake can be. There have been a few recent incidents where planes have encountered the wake and suffered structural damage as a failure in result. 2017, a business jet encountered the wake of an A380 wake at cruise altitude and rolled several times and dropped 10,000 feet before the uh, pilots recovered control. Amazing. Again, amazing. Uh, This small business plane hits the wake of an A380, flips a whole bunch of times, falls 10,000 feet, and the pilots recover the plane like, Amazing, amazing for the plane and but amazing for the pilots. Um, I'm always just really uh, you know, I'm a sort of in awe of, of pilots in general. I, I think they they don't get enough credit for doing an amazing job, um, except when they are put in especially uh, terrifying situations. Uh in 2013, small aircraft encountered the wake of a narrow body commercial airplane, an MD-80, and broke up in flight. Either as a result of the wake or the pilot's reaction. Fortunately, wake turbulence has been recognized a hazard since early 1970s, when a combination of much larger aircraft being introduced into more crowded airspace caused more encounters. So a lot of regulators established requirements with wake turbulence that require that reduce the frequency of serious wake turbulence. Um, basically, by keeping it, to, you know, wake turbulence is the wind that the the jets of a plane leave behind them. You know, so this is the their exhaust. Coming out, so to get around this, uh, regulators have uh, specific distance and time um, measurements between them. It, I think it's typically, usually about three minutes of distance, or about six miles, which is about what fifteen kilometers or so, depending on the size of the aircraft and, and the aircraft zone and, and the levels and all that. But you you basically have to keep this, you know, big distance between planes of different. Types so that they don't run into the wake from the engines of, uh, of, of each other and cause turbulence. So I think that kind of answers the question. I think uh, there's not really a significant amount of turbulence that could take down a plane these days because planes are just built and designed so much better to handle turbulent situations. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think wake turbulence is something else. It's unnatural, but uh, that that's dangerous. But it seems like uh, as far as natural turbulence, there's, there's not that much that can um, uh, really affect the plane. So next time you are flying and you hit a bit of turbulence and you get nervous or maybe your seatmate or companion or whoever's next to you gets nervous, you can just let them know, hey, nothing to worry about. All that bumping is only about like five, you know, like a meter or two down, just kind of bouncing up and down and, and turbulence. I don't know if you know this scientific fact is tied to when you get your meal, because I don't know if it happens to you, but every time I'm served food, there will be turbulence. I don't know what it is, but there must be a connection somehow. Either way, hope that makes you feel better about flying, makes you feel safer about flying and makes you maybe excited to even experience turbulence. You might even be missing it because we haven't been traveling in in so long, you know, in two months. All right, there you go. Thanks. Um, All right, there you go. Thanks. I don't know. That didn't make sense. Anyway, that's it for Turbulence Crashing Planes. Um, Now I'm going to play you in the next segment a clip on a a video I put out that was uh, not controversial at all. So that video was the India versus Pakistan compared, traveling in those two countries. So I put out a video about that. I I recommend that you take a look at it. I've got a couple of follow-ups to it that are coming out in the next couple of days. Um, it, it It was a question I was asked a lot. It was a question that was in my mind a lot. I've been to India almost 20 times. I went to Pakistan for about a month earlier this year. And it was hard not to compare the two countries in my mind because when I think of India, I think of Pakistan. And when I think of Pakistan, I think of India. It goes back and forth. It's natural. The countries are... Both have a shared history, they're both rivals, they're both next to each other. There are a lot of similarities between these two countries, but they're also very distinct. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard not to do that. I think if you travel to France and you go to Belgium, you're probably going to compare the two, maybe. Or, or you go to Greece and you go to Turkey, you're not going to compare the two. And then if you make a video about that, people are probably going to get irritated, so one way or another. Um, so some of those comments are, are pretty funny. It was very interesting. And some of them were on a topic which I'm going to clear up, uh, which I can't do firsthand, but I'm going to clear up hopefully in an upcoming podcast to give you more of an insight of what it's like to travel there as a female. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm not female, so it's hard for me to answer that question really. I mean, I can kind of guess, but I can't really give a firsthand account. I think uh, I'm going to get somebody who's a little bit uh, better equipped to uh to answer that so I want to play this clip from you from that video it's just the first couple minutes of it India versus Pakistan just to give you a general idea of the differences between the two countries and uh, come back with some of my thoughts now this isn't to say one country is better than the other that's totally a subjective thing and can't really quantify that so this video isn't about that and this video isn't This country is better than this country. It's really the differences between traveling in these two places. So these are some of the differences between traveling in both of these countries, whether or not you're planning a trip to either of these countries, to give you an idea of what it's like from a travel perspective. For starters, I'm going to talk about the crowds, which seems like it's a really obvious thing. I mean, India has 1.3 billion people and Pakistan only has 220 million people or so. So you would think that it's really not surprising that Pakistan felt a lot less crowded than India. I think what's really confusing to a lot of people is when you get to India, it's really, really crowded. Just pretty much if you arrive in one of the big cities by flight, then you get out of the airport, it's just going to be people pretty much everywhere. In the cities, it's like that as well. Whereas in Pakistan, although you do have cities that have a lot of population density, they don't feel as crowded. And that's because, well, one, there are less people, but two, the roads are a lot wider. So these wide roads give you a lot more space to move around. And because of that, it doesn't feel quite as crowded. So it's not quite as intimidating as it can be in India when you're surrounded by crowds. And when we're talking about crowds, it's not just people. It's also animals, all kinds of motorbikes and rickshaws. You have motorbikes and rickshaws in India and Pakistan, of course, in both places. But when it comes to the animals you've got in India, you can have dogs, cats, Pigs, cows running around, monkeys, all sorts of things. And that adds an extra element to making it feel a lot more crowded than it might be otherwise. In India as well, you're more likely to encounter other tourists. Whereas in Pakistan, you don't really come across other tourists too frequently. India has a much more developed tourism industry because it gets more tourists. So those things kind of go hand in hand, more tourists, you get a more developed tourism industry. Whereas in Pakistan, you don't have as many tourists. So not that well of a developed tourism industry. That means if you're the kind of traveler that takes a lot of tours or you more or less like your trips to be planned out for you before you arrive at a destination, India is, in that sense, a lot easier. Pakistan, because it doesn't have as well of a developed tourism industry, means it doesn't have all those tour packages and all those different options that you have in India. Yes, there are tours in Pakistan, of course, there are tour packages, but it's just not as varied as you would find in India. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope, you know, I I recommend that you take a look at that video. It's up on YouTube, just YouTube, Fox Nomad, and you'll find my channel. You might as well just subscribe while you're there so you don't miss those videos. And uh, you will find the video. It's it's one of the last two or three that I've put out. Like I said, a couple of follow-up videos on that coming out. Definitely hit the comment section, which is kind of a disaster and kind of a beautiful disaster. Some very nice comments, some very meme comments, a lot of hilarious comments. You know, it's YouTube. That that's how that the comments roll. But um I thought it was it was very enlightening. I think when I put the video together. So originally when I was asked the question, I had I had originally thought about putting that video out, you know, um, because it was something that was on my mind while it was there, to be honest. So it was in my idea notebook of uh, potential, you know, topics for, for a video. And I was thinking, well, wow, this is gonna be super controversial which is okay i don't i don't mind something being controversial but i was thinking what can i you know i how can i put this in a way that's gonna really answer that question in a in a meaningful and thoughtful manner how can i you know respond respond to this question (coughs) whoa i don't know what that was um yeah so how can i respond to this in a meaningful way in other words where i'm just not like yeah, it was. they're totally different or they're totally the same or this is better and that's better. And I was like, let me just keep it down the middle. And the first things that jumped out at mine, as you heard, the first thing was the crowds. And I think, you know, when you visit India for the first time, just the number of people there is just going to really blow you away. I don't care if you're from New York City. In fact, I've met some people who are from New York City when I was in Delhi a couple months ago. And uh, even they were like, this is this is pretty uh, hectic, you know. On your first day, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It it makes New York look like uh like Alaska. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, so it's really crowded. I think that's something. It's really interesting to see. You're just like, wow, there are really probably are a billion people here. You 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 don't you wouldn't you don't question it. You don't go, huh? You know you think ah a billion people. That's probably not going to be that. You know that um. Uh, what do you call it apparent that there's that many people there but there are um, and so I think in India a lot of the things that I noted in Pakistan are just amplified and I think they're amplified because it gets a lot more tourists it's a lot more crowded I think um, those two things really sort of set them apart um, as as far as really at the core of travel though like if, if you talk about the differences and I think a lot of people picked apart the specific differences in there. I think when you look at the core, what is it like to travel there? I think both are just great places to travel. I think they're both just amazing adventures. India is well traveled. So there are a lot of travelers going there. You know, it's a very popular, you know, it's a pretty popular destination. Uh, obviously the Taj Mahal is there, and there's all, you know, the Beatles were there. There's people have a lot of, of uh images in their mind of, of India, of traveling to India. So that's their In India. In Pakistan, you don't really have that. I'm sure the image in your mind is probably going to be something along the lines of terrorism, honestly. Like, you know, most people don't... You know, you think India, tourist site, tourism, Taj Mahal, boom. I think Pakistan, you don't think as a tourist destination and the first thing you think of is going to be violence, you know. Um, But what's surprising to me in Pakistan was not what I expected, was was, uh, not, uh, you know... You, I mean, I made enough videos about it, and I've talked about it enough. But it was not what I expected. It it doesn't feel like, yeah. It just it's a great place to travel. It's it's not the easiest place to travel, and that's because it doesn't get a lot of tourists. It doesn't have a well developed tourism industry. I believe it will get there. I think it's on the right track. I think it's got the things in place. It's making the right decisions. It's got a lot to see. You've got mountains in the north. You've got great food. You've got festivals, all kinds of stuff. All the cities and regions are very varied like they are in India. So I think you're going to see kind of Pakistan as a potentially up and coming tourism destination. I th- I could see that happening in the next couple of years. Um, whereas India is just like, you know, they, they got the game down. So they know they, they've got the tourism industry. They've got all kinds of varied tours and it's really as i think india is probably a more daunting place to travel because it's such a big country it's so crowded there's so much to see so i think if you were just going to solo travel in either country they can both be daunting but in india you've got all those different tour packages you know you've got different different kinds of operators so you've got like a if if you want to go on a i don't know a, a, a chicago bulls themed journey to the taj mahal on a tour as a solo male traveler in a volkswagen camper van i'm sure you could find find that that's how random that's how specific the tours can get in india whereas in pakistan you're much more on your own uh there are tours there but not a lot so you you don't have a lot of options for travel there and um it's great for solo travelers if you like adventure it's great for that Um, But if you're somebody who likes tours, like I mentioned in the video, it's, it's not the best for that. Now that will get there as more independent travelers get there, tourism industry grows and so on and so on. So I think at the core, really fascinating places to visit, really eye opening places to visit, places that will really, really give you that kind of mental exercise that I think is just great about travel. It's sort of like just this you know, this overload of sensation and experience, um, this mental exercise. I'm reading a book right now, which I'll recommend to you called Successful Aging. And it talks about one of the great ways to keep your mind young is walking, not just walking on a treadmill, which is better than not walking, but walking outdoors, especially in nature. So it says, essentially, when you're walking in nature, you're walking on a trail, you know, you've got to kind of keep Uh, an eye on your surroundings you got to watch out for tree branches on the ground you know the ground is uneven so your subconsciously your ankles are adjusting for the um, you know the ground beneath you and so on and that's something that's so hardwired into our hypothalamus that that kind of mental stimulation is really good for our brains especially mentally and it can help uh, keep off dementia uh, in later years it's it's it was very interesting a great book i recommend I'll link to it in the in the show notes, which is uh, it's called successful aging. Um, and I think travel when you th- when I was reading that, I was like, oh, travel really does that, you know. Like you're not even you're not just traveling in somewhere like a path you've traveled, you know. Even if you're going to a park near where you live, you know, you kind of know the trail. But when you're traveling, like everything is new, and that must be such great brain exercise. And India and Pakistan, that's that's great brain exercise because uh, they are very unique places to travel and you you're just going to be like overstimulated with all kinds of you know foods and people and sights and streets and all kinds of stuff so i think they're both great one is just a little bit easier to travel to now for a certain type of traveler i hope you check out the video and just go through the comments cuz you'll you'll have a laugh i think um anyway thanks for listening um i'm i'm i, uh, I feel like i'm a little bit all over the place today but uh you know that's what happens when you don't when you don't edit these segments. I'm just going straight through so uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I came across something that I wanna leave you with. This was on i o nine These are the twenty two rules of storytelling according to Pixar, you know Pixar from movies such as Wally and Toy Story you know that Pixar so this is this was on Twitter somewhere, but I couldn't find the tweet, but it is on i o nine I will link to it in the show notes if you want to see the full twenty two rules of storytelling. This was uh, this is according to the storyboard artist Emma Coates, um, and she compiled nuggets of quote nuggets of wisdom, narrative wisdom she's received from working for the animation studio for over over the years. Um, I would just want to pick out some things which I think are not only great for storytelling, which is, you know, part of which is basically my career. Um, but I want to pick out some of the things I think are good life advice as well at least are relatable to that. Maybe get your mind even more exercising since you probably aren't traveling now. So the first piece of advice uh, that I want to pick out here is number one. You admire a character for trying more than their successes. And uh, I I just like that. I'll I'll, I'll let you ponder that. Um, let's see. Uh, I like number four on the list. I think it's great. The story structure. Once upon a time, there was a blank. Every day, blank. One day, blank. Because of that, blank. Because of that, blank. Until finally, blank. I wonder if we could just write out our lives like that, you know? Kind of kind of be cool. Might be a good writing exercise for you. I, I see a lot of people tweeting, like, I don't know what to write about. I don't know what to write about. Or people want to get into writing now that they have this time home. There's a good exercise for you. Write out your life as a one-page story, starting with Once Upon a Time, Blank, every day, blank, one day, blank, because of that, blank, because of that, blank, until finally, blank. Uh, Number five, simplify, focus, combine characters, hop over detours. You'll feel like you're losing valuable stuff, but it sets you free. I like number six, uh, what is your character good at? What are they comfortable with? Throw the polar opposite at them, challenge them, how do they deal? And number eight, finish your story. Let go, even if it's not perfect. In an ideal world, you have both, but move on. Do better next time. Uh, Let's see. Let's go down. Oh, these are all great. I'm gonna. I hope you read them. They're really interesting. Um, But I'll go. I'll, I'll just pick out maybe three more. Okay. Here you go. Why must you tell this story? What's the burning belief? What's the belief burning within you that your story feeds off of? that's the heart of it Uh, what are the stakes give us reason to root for the character what happens if they don't succeed stack the odds against them and I like this one a lot and I'll leave you this this one a lot no work is ever wasted if it's not working let go and move on it'll come back around to be useful later so hopefully you've enjoyed those I thought um, these tips were just great thought-provoking and very interesting um, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast I gotta remember to to ask you to do this at the beginning of the podcast but if you're still listening to this please if you haven't already leave a 5 star review wherever you're listening to this so if it's Apple Podcasts Spotify Google Podcasts leaving those 5 star reviews is a big help to the podcast earlier in the year we hit the top 50 and 200 in Apple Podcasts in tech that was absolutely incredible but uh, if you want to help the podcast Five stars uh, in wherever you're listening to this would be a massive help. Thanks very much for listening. Um, Hope you have a great next couple of weeks and I will catch you in the next episode.